Okay, turn with me to Matthew 13. We are looking at passage in uh, from 24 to 30, and then again from 36 to 43. We've been through a lot of this last week, but let me just review to bring us up to speed, and we'll wrap it up, and then we'll move on to the next passage. But uh, we're, we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares. We said this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven, about God's rule on earth during this mystery period that they didn't know about, the disciples didn't know about. He likens it to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The man owns the field. It's his field. You have to remember that. And he's not borrowing or leasing the field. It belongs to him. And he sows the seed. Good seed, not mediocre seed or average seed, really good seed. And in verse 25 says that while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And we said those tares uh, refers to a poisonous weed known as darnel, which is virtually indistinguishable from wheat until the ear appears. And then we pointed out that that word among, among the wheat, it's a very strong Greek expression, which means in the midst, throughout, between. So these Darnells are sown all throughout the field mixed in with the wheat. Verse 26 says, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Uh, and verse 27, the landowner's slaves come to him and they say, didn't you, didn't you put out good seed? How come there's tares now? And they're shocked. And they, uh, they wouldn't have really been shocked if there had been just a few Darnells because that was to be expected. It was a common weed in the area. So... There might have been a few, but they're shocked because they're, the, whole, the whole field is full of them. There's Darnells everywhere. So the landowner recognizes that an enemy has done this to his field, and the slaves say, well, he wants to go back and gather the tares. And he says, no, you're liable to uproot some of the wheat while you're trying to pull out the tares. Instead, leave them there for now. Allow both of them to grow together till the harvest. At the time of the harvest, I'm going to tell the reapers who... Uh, to gather up these tares and bind them into bundles, burn them up, and put the wheat in my barn. And uh, uh, the reapers would have been more experienced than the slaves in making that distinction. They would have been qualified to weed out the tares from the wheat and burn the tares. So they would gather the wheat and store it in the landowner's barn. And then we drop down to verse 36, where Jesus gives the interpretation of this parable to his disciples. Uh, verse 36 says he left the crowds, went into the house. What house what was the house he came out of? Very likely it's Simon Peter's house in Capernaum because verse 1 told us that he, he went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. That would have been the Sea of Galilee. And since Simon Peter was a fisherman who lived in Capernaum, that's most likely where it was. And it says that the disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. And so this, this group, and when I say disciples in this passage, it encompasses more than just the 12. We know that from Mark 4.10. And uh, uh, so these are believers who are there, and they're the only ones that are getting an explanation. And verse 37 says, He answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Well, who's the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. Christ is the Son of Man. That's His common title for Himself. He used that more than any other title to refer to himself. 
It identifies him to be all that a man could be, the perfect man. It identifies him as the second Adam, representative of the race. Uh, it's also a messianic title, Daniel 7:13. Messiah said to be called the Son of Man. So he's identifying himself as the Messiah, God incarnate. And what does this tell us? It tells us there are several lessons. It tells us that it's the Lord who's sowing the seed. Notice it says in verse 38 that the field is the world. So the Lord is sowing seed in the world. The world is his field. It belongs to him. It's his kingdom. Uh, what does he sow? Jesus says he's sowing good seed. What's the good seed? Well, in this parable, good seed refers to the sons of the kingdom. Uh, he says that in verse 38. What that means is that the Lord puts the children of the kingdom in the world. They are those who respond to the word, the truth of the word. They're characterized by their relationship to the kingdom. They belong in the kingdom. So what's it saying? It's saying that God sows the children of his kingdom throughout the world. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. God's going to put his people all around the world. And they're sons of the kingdom. We are subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been planted in the world to be his witnesses, to grow, to become fruitful plants of righteousness. We who genuinely love the king, who genuinely affirm his lordship, who truly are subjects of his sovereignty, are planted in his world. We're not here by accident. We're planted by the Lord in exactly the place that he wants us in the world. But who else is in the world, the field, with us? Verse 38 says, the tares, who are the sons of the evil one. That's the devil. He's the evil one. Anyone who's not a child of the kingdom is a child of the evil one. There are only two kinds of people in the world, children of the king and children of the devil. And if you're not a child of the king through your submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're a child of the devil. It's that plain and simple. And we have to understand that Satan has really oversown God's field, the world. He's, he has his people everywhere. In fact, in most parts of the world, the entire crop is sons of the evil one. Uh, you, you have to look a long time to find some wheat in there. So there's a massive sowing. He likes to sow his seeds as close to the wheat as he can. And even though the field here is the world, he does sow them in the church because the church is part of the field. Uh, but when we find them here in the church, we have instruction, biblical instruction, to get rid of them. The New Testament's clear on that. And then we come to verse 39, and we find this important statement. The harvest is the end of the age. Now, why does he say that? Because the disciples were ready to put the sickle to the wheat right there. Uh, and they wanted God to come in judgment right then. And I must admit, I get that same feeling the same way at times. Uh, but this statement by Jesus has to do with the church's relationship to the world. It's not a message dealing with internal church discipline, rather the church's external relationship to the world. <laughs> and Jesus makes clear he's talking about the end of the age and the final judgment when the true wheat will be separated from the false tares. And he forbids his slaves from trying to do the work. Reserved, it's, that's reserved for the reapers who are the angels. <coughs> because if the slaves did it, they might mess it up, destroy some good wheat in the process. So we can't do that. God didn't call the church of Jesus Christ to judge the world. God doesn't want us in a position of political power destroying unbelievers because the truth is we don't have the discernment to know who are true believers and who are not. It's not the church's function to go ripping out the tares of the world. That's not what we have been called 
to do. This is not the age of judgment. This is the time of grace. We cannot act as executioners. We must be loving, patient, graciously tolerant like our Lord was. Uh, the church is called to preach and teach against sin and all unrighteousness. But in doing that, its purpose is not to judge, but to win souls, not to punish, but to convert the sons of the evil one into sons of the kingdom. And you know something else? If we tried to act in judgment, we might be sparing some of the rocky soil stuff and some of that thorny ground stuff because we can't tell the difference and we might be uprooting the real stuff. So we are to have a heart of compassion, not a heart of condemnation. Let me take this a step further. We can't apply spiritual principles that we live by in the kingdom to the rest of the world. You can't say we ought to get rid of all these people. They're really messing up our world. They're, they're just doing what comes natural to them. Uh, you can't expect them to act in any other way than they already act because it is their nature to act that way. You can't tell them, I wish you people would behave respectfully and kindly and nicely like we Christians do. Uh, that's impossible for them because they're doing the only thing they know how to do, which is to behave like children of the devil. Uh, so many Christians want to demand that the world behaves like them. And it can't. But uh, the unregenerate people of the world have absolutely no ability to do so for any extended period of time because they are slaves to sin. They may clean up and act nice for a short period of time, but inevitably they will return to doing what their fallen nature tells them to do. They're like the dog and the sow that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 2.22, which we have looked at in other lessons at other times. Uh, salvation then calls us to a place that seems to be precarious because we're commingled with the world. Uh, but listen carefully. I don't think the Lord is greatly disturbed by that because the nature of wheat can't be changed. Uh, we may be next to the tares, but they can't change our nature. Uh, if we're, that is, if we're truly wheat, right? Uh, but the converse is not necessarily true. The nature of the tares can be changed by the influence of godliness. And so we are called then to be patient, to share the gospel message, but not to demand that they live a certain way. Uh, we're not to call them to outward legalism. That's what the Pharisees did. We are to patiently live and behave like Jesus and share his gospel with them so that when they see our lives and desire to be transformed from a false tear to genuine wheat, that the Holy Spirit would do that in them. Now, that brings us to the climax in verse 39. Remember that back in the parable, he said, just leave the tares until it's time for the harvest and the reapers will come and they'll do the separating. And verse 39 says, the reapers are angels. Now that tells us a significant difference between angels and Christians. Angels are called to execute God's judgment. Christians are called to righteous influence. We're not called to judgment. We're not called to condemn the world. 
Now we want to preach against its sins. We want to preach against its evils. But we want to love its sinners and evildoers and be gracious and patient with them. We are not God's executioners. That is not our task. We have an inadequate knowledge in the first place. We might end up making some terrible mistakes as has been done so throughout much of history. So the scripture is saying that God's going to judge. He's going to judge at the end of the age and the angels are going to be the reapers. And you can see over and over again in the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation how God has appointed the angels to reap. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay each one according to his deeds. The gathering of the elect and the gathering of those who to be judged is to be done by the angels. You see it also in Revelation 14 and Revelation 19 that angels are God's agent of judgment, not men. That's not our task. So he says to the guys in the parable, you're the, I'm, you're, you're the sowers, but I've got, a, I've got some other beings to be the reapers. Verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. We have to wait until the king comes back with his angels for this to happen. And that's precisely what 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 tells us. It says that at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When's that going to happen? 2 Timothy 1.10 says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints. He'll come to be glorified in his saints. And when he comes, he comes with his holy angels. And he will burn in unquenchable fire all those children of the wicked one. Now notice verses 41 and 42. They explain it. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom. That's referring to the whole world. Christ is king over the whole world, the entire world. And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels will go forth and pull out all the tares from the field, all the goats from the sheep, all those who reject God's perfect law, I believe that term stumbling blocks there refers to the false teachers and false religious leaders of all the false religions in the world. They're sons of the devil who work against God and through their actions cause many to fall into hell. In Jesus' time, they were the scribes and the Pharisees who, he said, turned their proselytes into twice as much a son of hell as they themselves were. And the angels are going to gather all of these false teachers and all of their followers and all who do not know God, and they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace that's hell, in which there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a phrase that appears six times in the Gospel of Matthew in reference to the response of those in hell. Uh, the word weeping refers to crying, sobbing, wailing, loud shrieking. It isn't simply some tears flowing down the cheeks. It is loud wailing and sobbing. And gnashing of teeth speaks of grinding one's teeth together. Uh, most of the time, people do that under one of two conditions. They're either in great pain or they're extremely angry. I think both conditions will be found 
among those in hell. They will be in great pain, obviously, but they will also be extremely angry at God for sending them there, and their sinful hearts will continue to rebel against his authority over them throughout eternity. And so there's coming an inevitable judgment when the Lord sends his angels to pull out all of the unbelievers from the world, and they're all thrown into hell, which is described as the fiery furnace. You know, I can't imagine a worse way to die. Uh, fire is the most horrible death a human can ever experience, and that is the imagery of eternal hell. And yet it is also a place of outer darkness. Uh, three times in his gospel, Matthew refers to hell as the outer darkness. So it's a place of complete darkness, total blackness, and yet it burns with the intensity of a fiery furnace. That's the future of everyone who refuses to repent of their sin and rejects Christ as the only way to receive eternal life. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people express the idea that they expected to go to hell for their evil deeds, but they thought everything would be fine because they're going to be with their friends. And yeah, it may not be very comfortable, but they'll be partying with their friends. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? Yes. They actually think that hell isn't much worse than living here on earth. But this verse tells us that not only is hell a fire, it tells us how the people who are there will react. They will be gnashing and grinding their teeth and shrieking as they sob with pain, and it will be eternal and inescapable. But until we reach the end of the age and the Lord and his angels return, Jesus says, the wheat and the tares are to remain side by side, breathing the same air, enjoying the same sunshine and rain, eating the same food, attending the same schools, working in the same factories and offices, living in the same neighborhoods, and sometimes even attending the same churches. But one day, finally, judgment will fall. And after it falls, verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. When the Lord returns, they will not only perfectly separate out the wicked for eternal punishment, but also the righteous for eternal blessing. Matthew 24, 31 says, He'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Then comes the holy glory of the saints. Then comes the anticipated kingdom. Then comes the righteous Shekinah lighting the face of all the saints for all the ages. Can you imagine? Believers will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In fact, Daniel 12.3 says, They'll shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. The last point that Jesus makes is the application, verse 43. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the application. You say, what does it mean? It simply means what I used to hear my mom say when I was little. Bruce, you'd better listen to me. What Jesus is saying is this. Every person who is uncertain about his relationship to God should ask himself if he is wheat or merely a tear that looks like wheat. If he is a child of God or a child of Satan. If he's a child of the kingdom or a child of the enemy. If he's a child of the enemy that he needs to understand that judgment is coming someday and he needs to come to Christ. God is in the business of making wheat out of tares, saints out of sinners. 
And for those who are sure they're wheat, true sons of the kingdom, then they should hear what Jesus says in order that their attitude towards the world would be the loving, merciful, compassionate attitude of Jesus. We're to coexist in the world and to influence the world for good, not be influenced by it. We're to be used by God to reach the tares that are near us. We're to witness rather than condemn, to love rather than to hate, to show mercy rather than judgment. In that way, it says in Philippians 2.15, we prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what we're to be. And that brings us to the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares and its interpretation. Before we move along, are there any questions or thoughts? Everybody's good. Okay. Let's then back up because as I told you, we, we skipped over a couple of parables in order to get the interpretation of this one and put them together. But let's... Yes. The Bible calls us to be fruit inspectors. How does that fall into what you're speaking? I mean, how does that play out? That has to do in terms of believers, those who profess to be believers. We're to be, we are to look for fruit uh, in the lives of those who claim to be believers. And uh, uh, Jesus says, by their fruit, you'll know them. So, we're to look for those, those, somebody comes to you and they say they're a believer, and okay, and we go, as we build a relationship and we go along, we're looking to see if we see evidence of that fruit. Are they really truly a believer? Or are they, have they deceived themselves and they really need to hear the gospel again, more clearly? Um, and of course, and then when you apply that in the role of church discipline, when someone is in sin and is bearing terrible fruit, ungodly fruit, then we have to deal with that too. So, and that's the way that we are fruit inspectors. Okay? All right. Anything else? Yes, Barry. Uh, just to be talking about hell, it's like I remember a note about that uh, Jesus spoke more about hell than all other uh, Bible writers. Bible. Yeah, yeah. Jesus spoke a lot about hell. The, uh, all right. Well, let's back up to verses 31 to 35. These are the parables we skipped over. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seda of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. You know, small things can ultimately have very large effects. Did you realize that virtually all Western music comes 
basically from 12 notes. Seven basic notes, and there are five sharps and flats. And all the words that have ever been uttered or written in the English language come from only 26 letters. Uh, small things, profound results. Lord Kelvin was a famous British mathematician and physicist who made some tremendous discoveries in the field of atmospheric electricity and thermodynamics, which have been had ongoing benefits to the world for over 125 years. He was also a Christian who openly disagreed with his contemporary Charles Darwin and insisted that science proves that creation was designed by an infinite creator. And one of Lord Kelvin's experience provides an interesting insight into this matter of small things having large effects. He suspended a large chunk of steel weighing many pounds by a cord in his laboratory. And he then proceeded to wad up little bits of paper about the size of a pea and systematically throw those wads of paper at that huge hunk of steel. At first, that rather imperceptible tap had no effect at all. But eventually, that steel was swaying rhythmically back and forth due to the cumulative effects of the relentless tapping of those little pieces of paper. You see, each tap sent a tiny, undetectable wave of energy vibrating through that large hunk of steel, and each tap just added to that wave of energy until it started swinging. Small things, profound effects. On the negative side, I spent a large portion of my adult life working in law enforcement where we carried firearms every day and prayed we never had to use them other than when we were in training. But one of the things that a lot of people who don't know anything about firearms don't realize is that a bullet is actually very small. Uh, in fact, in a nine millimeter round, the bullet portion only weighs about a quarter of an ounce. Uh, even a large bullet, like a 45 caliber round, only weighs about a half an ounce. Uh, but they do massive damage to the human body when they are shot from a gun. Small things, profound results. That's really the lesson of these parables. In an immeasurably more dramatic and important way, God would demonstrate through the church how a handful of believers, totally weak, inept in themselves, would, in his power, turn the world upside down. And the kingdom of heaven would grow and prosper despite Satan's opposition and would ultimately permeate and influence the whole world in Jesus' name. You see, the disciples were looking for Jesus to establish a kingdom of glory, power, majesty, wonder. They expected a kingdom where the unbeliever and the rejecter of the Messiah would immediately be devastated and destroyed. But it didn't happen. And Jesus teaches them why in Matthew 13. He says, before that kingdom comes, there's another form of the kingdom which you must understand so you're not confused. And in verse 11, he refers to it as a mystery form. That means it's something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It was not laid out so that you would understand. It was hidden. And so now he's telling them about it. And he gives them seven parables which explained to them the kingdom in its mystery form, which will take place prior 
to the millennial blaze of glory that they were anticipating. The first parable he gave them was about the four kinds of soil. Three of them did not receive the message of the king. He, he tells them that this form of the kingdom is going to include rejection. And since we're living in the time of this mystery form of the kingdom, I think we would all agree that most of the world rejects Jesus Christ. Most of the world is the hard soil that doesn't even let the message in, or the rocky soil that only lets it in for a little while and then it withers, or it's the thorny soil that finally chokes it out because of the love of the world and cares of this age. Most of the world rejects Christ. And so he says, in this form of the kingdom, I'll still be the king, I'm still the ruling sovereign over the earth, but I'm allowing for rejection. And of course, the immediate question that would come into the mind of the disciple would be, well, what's going to happen to the rejectors? How are we to treat those who reject the king? I mean, if this is the kingdom and we're subjects of the king, are we to be upholding the honor and glory of the king? How do we handle these rejectors? They're thinking from a human perspective in which if you had a king and you were a loyal subject of the king and there were a bunch of revolutionaries and reactionaries and rebels in the society, you wiped them out. So they're saying, what are we going to do with these blaspheming rejectors? And so the Lord tells them the second parable. He says, the wheat and the tares, the kingdom citizens and the rejectors are going to grow together until when? The judgment. And what he's saying is it's not your job to be the executioners. That's for the angels in judgment. Your job is to keep on being wheat in the midst of the world so you influence the tares that are around you. <coughs> You're not to be the executioners. You're not to pull off judgment. You're not to pull them out of the ground because you don't know what you're doing. You're liable to kill some Christians in the process and let some non-Christians go because you can't see their heart. So your job is not judgment. Your job is evangelism. They'll grow together to the end. So what do you think the next question in their mind would be? They're going to be asking, well, if this is the kingdom and we've got all these people who reject and they're all over the place, and evil is so powerful and strong and dominating in its influence, then if the wheat and the tares are going to grow together, isn't that going to choke out the life of the kingdom? Isn't that going to strangle the power of Christ in the world? And so the Lord gives them two more parables. He teaches them these two parables that show that from very small, insignificant beginnings, the kingdom is going to grow in spite of the opposition, to ultimately influence the whole wide world. The first two parables, the four soils and the wheat and the tares, talked about the conflict. They talk about the antagonism of evil and good in the kingdom. They talk about rejection and infiltration of evil. But the next two parables talk about the victory of the kingdom and its subjects. In the end, the tiny little mustard seed fills the earth and the, tiny, and the little piece of leaven leavens the whole loaf of bread. What starts very small ends up profoundly influencing everything. And so we move now from the two parables that describe the nature of the kingdom. It will be with believers and unbelievers side by side to the two parables that describe the power of the kingdom. In spite of its smallness, it will sweep the world. There's another way to look at this. The first parable of the soils basically talks about the breadth of the kingdom. The seed is sown in the field, and the field is the world. It's the breadth of the kingdom. The second parable talks about the length of the kingdom. It will go on until the harvest. The third parable, the parable of the mustard seed, talks about the height of the kingdom. We'll talk about extent. 
And the fourth parable of the leaven talks about the depth of the kingdom as it's hidden in the dough and influences from within. So you have the kingdom seen in its breadth, its length, its height, its depth. The Lord is describing it in every dimension. And after he's done with all of this, the next two parables he talks about, he talks about its personal appropriation in the life of an individual after having described its general characteristics. It's a marvelous progression of thought that he takes with these parables. Now, Jesus doesn't explain these two parables to us, but don't feel bad. He gave us someone to explain them to us. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. And we're, so we're not cheated at all. He explained them to the disciples. Mark 4.34 tells us he explained all these things to them. But for us, we have the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit living in us. And because of him, we understand the mind of God is revealed in the word of God. So we can fit this in with his plan. So let's begin by looking at the parable of the mustard seed. And I believe you'll be fascinated by this one. This describes the external power of the kingdom. Look at verses 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, once again, Jesus uses the illustration of a farmer planting in his field, and he plants a crop of mustard. Why? Well, mustard has been used for thousands of years in the entire Asian and African continents. In fact, it is one of the most popular and widely used spices and condiments in the world. Mustard greens have been consumed in China for at least 3,000 years. Uh, and archaeological excavations have found that ancient civilizations in India used it 4,000 years ago. Uh, they would grind the seeds into a paste and dip it in eat it like a dip or an appetizer. It was the Romans who first experimented with preparing mustard as a condiment. Uh, they mixed unfermented grape juice, known as mustum in Latin, uh, with, uh, uh, in, with ground up mustard seed paste. And because mustard paste is very spicy and hot, it is called in Latin ardens, okay? Means hot and fl or flaming, okay? So when you take the must from mustum and the ard from ardens, <laughs> the word mustard was coined, okay? And uh, there are a wide variety of mustard seeds, and they're normally very hot. Uh, the, the yellow mustard we typically use here in the United States has been made from the mildest of all the mustard seeds and then mixed with a high proportion of vinegar, so it's not hot like other forms of mustard. Uh, I'm sure some of you here probably have tried and may possibly like various forms of mustard. You try, ever try the Chinese mustard that they uh, serve with Chinese food? Too hot for me. I like hot food, but that's too hot for me. Uh, mustard was used for many other things as well. Uh, it was not only used as a condiment and a food flavoring, uh, but it was also used in medicine to make a mustard plaster 
uh, a poultice to serve as a protective dressing for a wound and to stimulate healing. Uh, ground mustard seed is still used as a soil additive to deal with soil-borne diseases. Uh, and both strangely and amazingly, years ago, it was discovered that cows whose feed is supplemented with mustard develop bones that has a superior quality for use in making, uh, they mix ground up cow bones with the silver compounds used in making photographic film uh, from years. So it was a valuable crop and resource in biblical times and was used for all of the purposes I've mentioned except film production. Uh, they, they didn't do that. Uh, the disciples would have been very familiar with seeing plots of large mustard bushes planted for the production of their seeds, and they would have seen the mustard seeds for sale in the local town square on market day, and the mustard leaves for sale as greens uh, on market at the market. In verse 32, it says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And right at that juncture, theological war takes place. The critics who want to attack the Bible pounce on that statement. They say that proves the Bible is not inerrant because everyone knows that a wild orchid seed is smaller than a mustard seed. Therefore, either Jesus didn't know, or, and if he didn't know, he's not God. Or else they will say he knew they were wrong, but he accommodated their ignorance. And yeah, that's what that's what we call they call biblical or cultural appropriation, where sometimes the Bible writer doesn't say what's true. He says what people think is true just to be re relevant. And once you've opened that can of worms, good luck, because who's going to say which is which? Um, so the critics say, well, you see, Jesus is wrong and either he's wrong because he's ignorant or he's wrong because he's going to going along with their error. So either way, you inerrantists are in trouble. So how do we respond? I say Jesus is right. Can I prove that? I think so. Notice the words garden plants in verse 32. The Greek word there refers to garden vegetables, garden greens that were grown purposely to be eaten. Romans 14 uses the same word in the passage talking about strong and weak believers. And it says, he who is weak eats vegetables only, uh, which is my proof text for why I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, just joking, of course. So, uh, but anyway, it refers to plants that are planted as a crop to be eaten uh, in opposition to wild plants. These are agricultural plants that were grown for the purpose of producing edible vegetables, greens, and seeds. Now listen carefully. Of all the seeds that were grown in the East or are sown there today for the purpose of producing edible products, the mustard seed was then and still is the smallest. Jesus is speaking within a framework in which what he says is exactly correct. This was affirmed by a man by the name of Dr. Lloyd Her Herbert Shiners. Uh, he was a botanist and director of the Herb uh, Herbarium at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It is the largest herbarium in the Southwest with more than 1.5 million 
preserved plant specimens, and he was a regular lecturer at the Smithsonian Institution until his death in 1971. Dr. Shiners stated this, quote, the mustard seed would indeed have been the smallest of those to have been noticed by the people at the time of Christ. The principal field crops, barley, wheat, lentils, and beans, have much larger seeds as do other plants, which might have been present as weeds and so forth. There are various weeds and wildflowers belonging to the mustard, amaranth, pigweed, chickweed family with seeds that are as small or smaller than mustard, but they would not have been known or noticed by the inhabitants. They are wild and they certainly would not have been planted as a crop. The only modern crop plant in existence with smaller seeds than mustard is tobacco and this plant uh, of American origin wasn't grown in the old world until the 16th century or later." End quote. So contrary to what the critic says, when Jesus talks about seeds, he's right. And if I can trust him with seeds, I can trust him with eternity. When Jesus said a man sowed the smallest seed that's ever sowed, he was absolutely right. And so then continuing in verse 32, Jesus says, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, basically, let me give you a little botany lesson. This partic the particular mustard seed that grows into a bush, that is normally about seven to eight feet in height. And that's a good-sized garden plant. And you'll notice that it's considered to be an herb. Uh, but frequently, it will grow to 12 to 15 feet in height. And there are many testimonies that have been written by eyewitnesses in the East who have seen these fields, both now and in the past, who have testified to the fact that they get to be 15 feet high. One writer talks about them being higher, higher than a horse and rider. Uh, another writer says that the horse and rider can ride under the branches of the mustard bush. Now that's a big bush. Uh, and what the Lord is saying is that you have no real connection between the smallness of the seed and the largeness of the end result. You have the very smallest seed issuing in the largest bush that can grow in a garden. You can plant a barley seed, you'll get a barley plant that's fairly good size. You plant a seed of wheat or of corn, you get a fairly good size thin thing. But if you plant this seed, and you get a 15-foot-high bush big enough to ride a horse under. That's his point. So the parable is not an exaggeration. It is a statement that is commonly understood by the listeners, as are all the parables. Their point is not an exaggeration. Their point is that they were commonly understood facts of life. Now let me stop right there before I move along in this parable. Uh, we're going to stop and pick it up next week. Any uh, questions or comments from the botanist in the room who, who might want to elucidate on mustard seeds more? I could have gotten Richard back there to elucidate on Lord Kelvin, but I decided not to. So, okay, Any, uh, anything? All right, well, let's uh, close with prayer and be dismissed.